Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Have you reached a point where you want to sleep in a different room because you can no longer physically sleep in the same bed as your spouse or partner? Full disclosure, My wife and I had reached this point where sleep loss was negatively impacting both of us. This is where internationally recognized sleep expert, Dr. Wendy Trexel comes into play. Wendy is a senior behavioral and social scientist at the RAND Corporation and holds adjunct faculty positions at the University of Pittsburgh and the University of Utah. A licensed clinical psychologist and certified behavioral sleep medicine specialist She is passionate about helping people get the sleep they need to perform at their best and live life to its fullest. Sleep or lack thereof has ramifications throughout our lives with our personal relationships and financial decisions. When people are not rested or at their best, they don't make sound personal or financial decisions. Sleep is this critically important health behavior and it happens to be the one health behavior that couples regularly engage in together. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Wendy Traxel. Well, Dr. Wendy Traxel, welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here with you. Well, I am uh, super excited to have you on because um, we're going to get into your background on on sleep and the book that you wrote, uh, sharing the covers, Every Couple's Guide to Better Sleep, because as we were talking about before I hit record, uh, this has been near and dear to not only my heart, but my wife, Teresa's, because we've been struggling with this for over, I'd say, a year, year and a half at least, um, yeah. and finally have been getting some release, relief based on um, her going to our dentist and having a um, special um, oral device, if you will, that has like shut down her snor- snoring like overnight. And she was, oh, just ta- she was just telling me the other day, she's like, I'm so glad that you kept on me about this because I know it's had to improve your sleep because it's definitely improved mine. So, um, I feel pretty lucky. It's wonderful. It's actually, you know, one of the reasons why I focus on sleep in the context of couples, which is, you know, our partners are really powerful sources of health motivation. And in this case, you know, the challenges that you all were facing as a result of a sleep symptom that she was having snoring, you know, was a motivator, not just for for her, because the snore is often oblivious to the impact, but you know, snoring is like a disease of listeners. And so the fact that you were bothered by it and it was disrupting your sleep as well, and she was attuned to that, that was a powerful motivator to do exactly what she should be doing, which is seeking treatment. And it's great news that an oral appliance in her case uh, was an effective treatment. Yeah. And the one thing I didn't want to have happen, and I can't wait for you to talk about this, is I didn't want to lead to a sleep divorce, which would ultimately lead to a real divorce. 
Oh, right. Yeah. Well, that this is certainly a topic that I get asked about quite a bit. And uh, you, you probably know that I hate the term sleep divorce. I do. It, it has so many negative connotations to it. And while I'm in no way prescriptive, about how any couple, uh, you know, should, you know, should sleep. It's a really intimate um, behavior and it should be made at the couple level. So I certainly am not recommending that couples sleep apart. But I also think as a society, we need to stop shaming people for making whatever decision is going to work best for them in their bedroom and in their relationship. Uh, Because it's this societal stigma that, you know, we attach to a sleep divorce, that it necessarily means a couple is marching towards a real divorce. Well, that's simply not true. There is not a one-size-fits-all sleeping strategy for all couples, and couples have to negotiate lots of different things. Maybe one is a shift worker. Maybe one thrashes about in bed or has some other sleep disorder, which really can't be easily rectified, for instance, with a oral appliance or some other treatment. For them, I think we really need to be sort of give them some grace and give people the opportunity to make the decision that's going to allow both them and their partner to get the best sleep they can get. Because what we do know from science is that uh, when we get better sleep, when we get the sleep we need and of good quality, we're better partners. So that's really where the priority should lay. Yeah, and I I couldn't agree with you more because um good, bad, or indifferent. I was, I was probably the, the partner that was really shaming my own wife into getting this and getting this done. But you make a really good point because now, now we've kind of overcome that situation. The next one is there are days where we get up at very different times. And those days, like where one of us has to get up earlier than the other, it, it really uh, affects one another. So, um, but before we get into the details, which we jumped into right away, which is great, I want to back up because this is why I love having psychologists or behavioral scientists like yourself on the show because um, you you bring such a depth of something specific that touches you know a lot of people. And with the work that I do as a financial advisor, people still often ask me like, why do you have these types of people on the show? I love listening to it, but it's like, it has nothing to do with financial planning. Like it has everything to do with financial planning, especially with what you do, Wendy, because if you're not sleeping at night, you're definitely not making good personal decisions or financial decisions. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, isn't it wise to look at this as the whole holistic picture? And as a financial advisor, I mean, what are we saving for? What are we planning our investments for? except to live a full and rich life, hopefully with, you know, in which we're happy and our families are happy. And sleep is really the foundation of a lot of that, not only for our own um, individual happiness, well-being, and physical health and functioning too, and our ability to make decisions and think well and work effectively, but also for our relationship health. So I really think that, you know, all of this does weave together. Um, and I'm, you know, again, delighted to be here because when people think about sort of their their financial health and what they're planning for, I think it's really important to incorporate, you know, the quality of our relationships. And within that, you know, sleep plays a really critical role. So let's let's take let's take our audience back and have you walk through a little bit about your your background. Where you where you came from, how you got started, like 
I, I always, that's the one thing I often wonder, like with people that really have this a specialty like yours, like, it's not like you woke up one day and like, oh, I'm going to be the expert. In I was sleep. not born <laughs> thinking I'd be a sleep researcher. No, <laughs> you know, sleep science was, you know, barely a field uh, when I was born. It's a pretty young field. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, uh, I have a, a one um, a son who's in college now and uh, there seems to be this tendency in college kids these days to think that they have to have their careers, uh, you know, mapped out from day one, especially those who you know want to go into finance. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, that is a lot of pressure. And, you know, my road to my career and many of the su other successful people I know took some very circuitous paths. So personally, um, the way I arrived in, in the world of sleep was via um um, a, a degree, a PhD in clinical psychology. And I always have been interested in why our closest relationships matter for our physical health as well as our mental health. And within that area of study, and you know, when I was doing my dissertation research, I was actually looking at the question of why is it that married people tend to live longer, happier, and healthier lives uh, than their unmarried counterparts. And then diving down even further within that, I started to ask the question, and this was the uh, sort of topic of my uh, dissertation was, um, you know, it's not just being married that matters when we really dive deep into the epidemiologic literature on relationships and health, but it's actually being in a high quality relationship. Uh, so particularly for women, women who are in a high quality marriage, you know, are, for instance, at lower risk of developing heart disease and dying from heart disease. And from that angle, I then wanted to think about, okay, then what is it really? What are the pathways that are explaining why healthy relationships are indeed health protective or why unhealthy relationships, whether they be in high, high in conflict or high in anxiety and angst, why they might actually confer greater risk for downstream health outcomes. And that's really where I arrived at sleep, uh, because sleep, this was you know 20 years ago when I was doing my dissertation, was emerging as this really critical health behavior. That's when we first started to get all this epidemiologic data showing that, for instance, short sleep duration uh, could predict a mortality as well as a number of uh, different disease um, outcomes like hypertension, diabetes, et cetera. And then I started to think, wow, well, sleep is this critically important health behavior, and it happens to be the one health behavior that couples regularly engage in together. And yet at the time, nobody was really systematically studying sleep in the context in which it actually occurs for most adults, i.e. with a bed partner. So I sort of stumbled on it as starting to think about sleep as a pathway that might explain these health effects of our close relationships. And then within that sort of entrance, everything just sort of exploded because it was such a novel area. And I had the opportunity to start, to start answering these questions that are really top of mind for much of the public, but there was really no scientific study of it. Things like, is it bad if my partner and I sleep apart? Are there health benefits? of couples sleeping together, or are we just assuming uh, that there are benefits? So I really got to dive deep and actually start to formulate the research base and build on it uh, with my colleagues 
to really bring scientific study to the social context of sleep. So one of the, you mentioned, I think a couple of times there, high quality relationship. Like, how do you, how is that defined? <laughs> yes, that, you know, relationship researchers have been at this for for quite some time. So far be it for me to try to define it, define it. Um, and I can't do so in a single sentence by far. But generally speaking, there are a number of characteristics that uh, can characterize a good quality or healthy relationship. Things like having um, good communication skills, uh, feeling that your partner is there for you and will be there for you in times of need. That's sort of an indicator of one of the most well-researched sort of characteristics of close relationships, which is attachment theory. So we like to think about secure attachments, not just between parents and children, but also with intimate partners. That feeling that you have someone who's in your corner no matter what, um, and really sort of holds your interests in the palm of their hands. That's sort of the image that I use when I think about a healthy relationship. There's also sort of an affective dimension of healthy relationships. And this is really the connection for me when it comes to sleep. Some relationships make us feel safe and secure, for instance, because we know our partner really has our best interests in mind. Um, they're the ones that we can go to when we you know, are suffering or in pain, and they'll really uh, take care of us and protect our interests. Um, and again, that, that, that idea of protecting us when we're most vulnerable, that's that idea of a safe and secure attachment. Whereas on the other hand, there are some relationships and we all probably are aware of some, you know, marriages or other marital like relationships where the partners actually don't have each other's back or there's actually a lot of worry whether that your partner is actually going to be there for you in times of need. So that relationship could be characterized by a lot of anxiety and vigilance. Maybe there's a lot of conflict or, you know, at the extreme end, um, you know, aggression, verbal or physical. So if you think of these opposing affective states in which relationships operate, on the one hand, you have some relationships that promote a sense of safety and security and well-being and others that promote vigilance and anxiety. Um, well, that actually really matters quite a bit for sleep because sleep at its core is a highly vulnerable state. You know, just think about it. You're lying yeah. down, semi-conscious, your eyes are closed. In our evolutionary past, that's a really vulnerable state to be in. And we're hardwired, you know, though that sort of, you know, vulnerability does not just go away, even though we're not, you know, sleeping, you know, on the prairie anymore, you know, vulnerable to, you know, other, you know, at least animal predators in the environment. So that that hardwiring that that the nighttime in particular in particular is vulnerable, that's really important. So how do we as human beings create a sense of safety and security during this vulnerable period, which is nighttime when we're asleep? Well, one of the primary ways is through our relationships, because human beings are social beings. So particularly in these high quality relationships that make you feel safe and secure, that actually is not only good for your health and well-being, but as we've seen from some science, is also good for your sleep. That's really interesting. I, I would have never made that connection, but just listening to you lay that all out, it it sounds it sounds like it totally makes sense. And and to me, like when listening to to walk us through that, it just in my mind highlights how much 
even how much more sleep is important. So yeah. if if you go back to your early work when you first started getting into this field, what were there anything that like really prompted like the mainstream, if you will, to for this awareness of of how much sleep is important? Because like nowadays you got all these gizmos that you can track your your sleep and you know, whether you're in REM or non-REM or whatnot. And there's just I think there's a lot more out there today for people to read and research than there was probably 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, well, it's really the culmination of, you know, now several decades of really rigorous scientific evidence from, you know, a number of, you know, you know, researchers and research labs across, you know, across the world um, that have produced this really compelling and consistent evidence demonstrating just how vitally important sleep is for virtually every biological, physiological system. You know, name something, whether it be uh, the cardiovascular system, we know quite conclusively that sleep loss and poor quality sleep, and here I'm talking about on a chronic basis, not the occasional bad night of sleep, but sleep loss and poor quality sleep chronically um, significantly uh, increases your risk for heart disease, diabetes, and stroke. So much so that the American Heart Association has added sleep to its list of eight modifiable risk factors um, to prevent uh, the onset of heart disease. So that's alongside sort of really well-known risk factors like, you know, don't smoke if you don't want to get heart disease um, or maintain your weight or use blood pressure medication. Sleep is on that same list along with those other risk factors. When it comes to our mental health, study after study clearly shows that sleep problems are not only a symptom of virtually every known mental health problem there is, um, but sleep problems can also predict the subsequent onset of later mental health problems, including some of the really big issues that plague our society today, like uh, depression, substance use, and suicide, right? So again, across the um, systems. If we look at athletic performance or uh, sort of our muscular system, um, there's it's no accident that nowadays virtually every elite athlete in every sport and professional um, sports teams around the world all are engaging people like me who are sleep experts to consult, you know, with the team or with the individual to optimize their sleep because there's such conclusive evidence that sleep can give you that critical competitive edge um, in, you know, in performance as well. So again, name the system, sleep matters. And that's really, so it's really this sort of blossoming and blowing up of the re research um, that has really led to this awareness. And now the, the fact that, you know, sleep is a you know multi-billion dollar industry as well, that, you know, sleep, which was previously really neglected, is now really at the forefront of the conversation. And now sort of what I'm bringing to it as well is this idea that, yes, there are these individual consequences of sleep loss, but we also need to now move beyond thinking that sleep is this isolated individual behavior, completely void of the social context in which it occurs. Uh, because we all live in social environments where we, sh whether we share a bed with a partner um, or sort of the neighborhoods in which we live. Um, all these factors in, in terms of the broader social structures as well also uh, contribute to the quality of our sleep. 
So that's really sort of where my research um, is, you know, moving even uh, further beyond the couple and into these broader social environments as well. Well, just listening to you talk about the athletes, I'm I'm going to have to make sure that my two girls listen to this because they're both competitive swimmers. And oh, I have swimmers too. <laughs> and their their coaches always pounding the table. The best thing that you can do is get enough sleep, and yeah. it, it it's still a, a real struggle uh, on the home front swim to coaches, do that. Yeah, I have a beef with some swim coaches, and actually had to <laughs> have a little sit down with with my children's uh, swim coaches in co- in high school because uh, you know I would give a lecture to the team happily uh, on his invite uh, about sleep. And then he's calling them to the you know morning practices at 5 a.m. And I said, it's you know, terrible. What? it ain't going to happen. Sorry, I can't do it. And, you know, quality training over quantity. And some coaches really s- still, you know, need some pushing on that. I realize it's, it's sometimes hard with pool time or, you know, rink time for the hockey players. But yeah. uh, I really had to put my foot down personally on that one. I, I felt like a hypocrite. If I were to let my kids be so sleep deprived through their athletic training, knowing that it could actually compromise their functioning, I couldn't do it. And luckily the coach, uh, you know, <laughs> was willing to deal with me. Well, that's, 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 that's reinforcing. So it's always, yeah. no matter who I have on, we always end up pulling these, these uh, great parenting moments out too. Uh, because are, most of you know, we mo- might be experts in some area, but at the end of the day, we're <laughs> we're all parents. That's we're for sure. One, one last data kind of wonky question before I, I want to pivot and really talk about your book and the and your focus on what you were just talking about is is it's not just and sleep's not just an individual. It's a it's a team sport, if you will. Yeah. But my my question on data where where does your where does the data come from? Like, how do you actually get the data that you put together for your research projects, your, your, your papers. Um, I'm just fascinated. Like who's, who signs up for these things and where's the data coming from? That's a great question. Um, Well, the short answer is this. I mean, first of all, it, it depends on my research question and I'm fortunate enough to have lots of diverse ideas myself and I like to get to dabble in different things and the methodology, you know, really depends on what the research question is. Um, you know, and I also have great coll- collaborations that get me to do different things. But generally speaking, for most of my re- research, because most of my questions have to do with something regarding how does sleep happen in the real world? right? As opposed to a laboratory. Now, there's lots of really important um, science that comes out of laboratory research, including some of, you know, our our sort of most fascinating sleep research comes out of studies that have happened under tightly controlled conditions um, in a sleep laboratory. And I'm I'm envisioning a sleep laboratory is like one that you're like, you're you're all hooked up to wires and things like that. You're going to have the EEG monitor on. You're going to have somebody coming in and out. You're going to have, you know, various, you know, electrodes throughout your body um, to to provide sort of the gold standard assessments um, of sleep, you know, with with, with all the monitoring, having someone there. You're typically isolated. um, So you're by yourself. Um, And from my perspective, again, most of the questions I'm asking are like, you know, again, how does sleep operate in the wild, in the real world? Mm -hmm. And so the methodologies I typically use um, 
you know, are ambulatory in some way. I use lots of, you know, research grade um, sleep tracking devices. Sometimes I do use that sort of gold standard technology, but that we can actually use in people's homes because I care less about how you sleep on one night in the laboratory versus how you habitually sleep, perhaps with your partner or not, or perhaps how does the characteristics of your neighborhood um, impact your habitual sleep quality. So these are the sort of, you know, devices that can be, you know, given to participants um, that they can use as they sleep in their real world environments. That's usually the types of methodologies that I gravitate to I also am really interested in characteristics of, you know, their social lives. So we might have do some daily, you know, um, sort of electronic diaries, for instance, where we have people record, you know, various things, for instance, um, about the, you know, their interactions with their partner that day. You know, did you have a conflict? How se severe was it? Um did you feel uh, supported? Did you trust your partner? Um, and, you know, in the populations I've studied really have varied from sort of normal, healthy civilian couples. Um, I have a real interest in sleep in military populations and how sleep um, can be a risk factor, not only for um, poor health outcomes in service members themselves, but also for their partners, particularly post-deployment. So I've, I've recruited uh, military couples who, you know, in which one partner has recently returned, um, for instance, from Iraq or Afghanistan this is a number of years ago uh, following those wars. Um, and then I have uh, studies of populations that have uh, specific sleep disorders like sleep apnea or snoring, where we're trying to develop treatments um, to enhance uh, the sort of treatment response of the individual with a sleep disorder, but also recognizing that the partner who is, you know, sleeping with someone, you know, who has sleep apnea, their sleep is also affected. So how can we also um, improve their sleep? Um, and then I have other studies that look at, again, larger sort of social factors, like what does it mean to live in poverty or in high crime areas? How does that impact your sleep? So again, I'm using devices and measurements that can capture the environment and one's sleep in a habitual framework. I believe I've, I've either heard in one of your, maybe it was one of your TED Talks, or I know maybe one of your papers where you're a big fan of maintaining a sleep log. Um, yeah. Can you explain like, why why that is and what what and what entails a a good sleep log like what do you what should what should people be writing down and full disclosure i've actually been doing this for probably the last probably two or three months yeah so yeah i have a, a version of a sleep log or sleep diary in my book um um there's you know lots of examples online personally and you had mentioned sleep tracking um earlier I tend to prefer sort of the, the low-tech uh, version, uh, which is why I really advocate for sleep diaries. There can be some great uses for sleep tracking if it's effective for you. Like if you get something out of looking at your Apple Watch or some other device and finding out, oh, I didn't sleep as well last night. Um, and that reminds you, oh, yes, I had an extra glass of wine, for instance. That can actually be sort of a powerful motivator for effective behavior change. But for other people looking at their sleep device, when they already know that they were sleeping miserably, all that device tells them and confirms for them is, oh yes, we slept miserably. And then how does that make you feel, right? You get even more anxious and upset. That's not good for your sleep. So I always ask when it comes to sleep tracking, 
you know, it's fine to use it if it's working for you. If, and that is, if it's helping you change behaviors, but if it's making you more anxious, then don't bother. It's really serving no, it has no passive purpose, except if it's, you know, motivating positive behavior change. But when it comes to sleep diaries, you know, that's a lot less judgmental. It's your perception. And the reality is your perception of how well or not well you're sleeping is vitally important, just as important as whatever that sleep tracking device is showing. And I think we have this tendency, you know, and as a scientist, you know, there's certainly this bias too, of like the objective standard is always the better one. And, you know, that may be true for some things, but when it comes to sleep, that's not true. It's not true at all. What is true is that objective measures can tell you something different than subjective measures. But if you're just wanting to get a handle on the consistency of your sleep, the quality of your sleep, and maybe are there some behaviors that you're engaging in that might be either interfering with good quality sleep or promoting good quality sleep, you can easily track that on a simple paper and pencil diary um, you know, where you're tracking things like, you know, I suggest you fill it out first thing in the morning. You, what you report on is your bedtime, you know, the previous night, your wake up time that morning. If you thought you woke up in the middle of the night, about how many times and you woke up in the middle of the night, about how long you think it took you to fall asleep. And, you know, any, if there were specific sleep disturbances, maybe writing them down too, because that's something potentially could be a target of change, right? If you, you know, if your dog is in your room with you and is, you know, um, you know, thrashing around or having dreams and that's waking you up, well, you might want to consider not having the dog um, in the, you know, certainly in the bed or in the bed, in the room with you, if that's a cause of your sleep disturbance, or maybe it's a child who keeps on coming in, and then maybe you want to address that issue. So it's a way to actually problem solve. And it's using your own perception, and also looking at your own intra individual variability in how you would rate your sleep quality. So you can do that on a one to 10 scale, you know, one being absolutely the worst night of sleep ever 10 being sort of, you woke up feeling totally refreshed. It was a great night of sleep, you know, um, that sort of gold star sort of experience of sleep, you know, and so you can see your own individual variability and then work to change that. And if you see that you're chronically sleeping poorly, Hey, maybe that's a signal that you want to seek medical treatment. Yeah. I, I know there was, there was a lot of great takeaways from reading your book and, but one of, one of mine, like I, like I just said, I started, um, probably th- two, three months ago when I finished reading your book was to start that sleep log. And I think what it's done for me is to bring awareness Mm -hmm. of what are triggers that are either helping me go to sleep or keeping me from your having me get up in the night. And so now it's about now that I've got kind of like the awareness down, now I got to figure out, okay, well, how do I start solving these problems? Like Exactly. So any sort of behavioral monitoring, whether it be with a watch or a glucose monitor um, or a sleep diary um, or any other sort of paper and pencil or or electronic diary, it's always sort of, it's sort of the first step of behavior change. Monitoring brings awareness. It doesn't in and of itself cause behavior change, right? It's the same thing. You know, if you step on a scale, um, that doesn't make you lose weight, but it might sort of make you sort of more aware, oh, you know, the pounds are creeping up, maybe I should do something about it. Similarly, however you track your sleep, whether it be through a sleep tracking device, if that's working for you, or a paper and pencil diary, which again, is my 
preferred method because it's my subjective experience to me that matters most. You know, I really don't care what a sleep tracker device tells me if it has says I have 100% sleep quality, but I felt that I slept miserably. Right. What I want to change is how I feel about my sleep because ultimately, you know, the metric of success for, of sleep for me is how do I feel during my day? Am I awake and alert most of the day? Am I functioning well without having to reach for, you know, an extra cup of coffee? Am I feeling a slump in the afternoon? Um, These kinds of things. If I'm able to function the way I want to function during my day, that is the purpose of my sleep. And so a sleep diary gives me that subjective sort of awareness. So I'd like to pivot and and kind of really turn inwards on your book and talk a, a few about a few of the specifics and you know for for somebody that hasn't read the book yet can you give us you know one two three you know major points that that we should take away like when we do start to read the book great well yes well first of all i encourage you all your listeners to please uh, go out and uh we'll make sure we have a link to in our yes, show notes yeah, so and, you know what i've heard from a lot of people it's available on audiobook too and so it's a great sort of couple level routine uh to um engage in with your partner as part of the pre-bed time routine, just to listen to the book and maybe engage in some of the exercises. Uh, But basically the book has, you know, I think 10 10 chapters. uh, So it covers a lot. And the beginning of the book kind of gives a roadmap um, for sort of what each section or chapter will cover. So you can actually bounce around um, if there are specific areas that are um, really of interest to you. So for, you know, um, uh, one of the chapters focuses on um, sex differences in sleep, and which is really important. Um, just it's interesting, but it's also really important in the context of heterosexual couples uh, to know that me- men and women's sleep is just different in many ways. So um, when you, you know, pair um, two people from different sexes together in their sleep and in their bedrooms, there's certain sort of challenges that uh, couples face that are in part based on these biological sex differences. I talk about how sleep changes in the context of your relationship throughout the various transitions, um, you know, in your coupled existence, whether it be, um, you know, after the birth of, you know, your children. We all know as parents that you know, having children profoundly um, and affects your sleep in, in very enduring ways. Uh, I still try to forget that first year when we had our triplets because I had the late night. I, I took the midnight feeding shift. That was brutal. That was brutal. I, I, I cannot even imagine uh, how you got through with triplets. Hopefully you have a great support system. <laughs> Fortunately, <laughs> we did. Yes, yes. Um, so I talk about that. I talk about as we age, how our sleep changes, and again, how that dynamic functions in a couple. Uh, I talk about the history of couples' sleep, um, because that's really important um, as a foundation, um, I think, for just opening the door to for couples to even broach the conversation of you know kind of what's working what's not working in the bedroom um because the history really tells us that you know there's never been one right way for couples sleep together in fact uh the history of couples sleeping patterns has varied dramatically you know across the centuries you know at one time it was really you know de rigueur for couples to sleep apart you know if anybody has seen you know the Netflix show, The Crown, you know, you know, couples who could afford it definitely slept apart because that was considered, you know, a sign of prestige, um, a sign of better hygiene. Um, and, and again, this was true for, you know, you know, many, many, many years. And um, there were other times in like 
you know, further back in history where it wasn't the marital bed per se, but a communal bed because the bed was really the most expensive piece of furniture in a household, say in the medieval times. And then we had, you know, the 1950s where we have these examples of couples, including, um, you know, couples on TV who, you know, um, like the I Love Lucy show, where that was a real life, you know, a married couple um, in real life and also on screen. And they had, you know, these separate twin beds. Um, so there are these images and there were these trends that have sort of vacillated over the years. And, you know, then sort of after the 1960s, that's really where we started to attach this strong meaning and stigma to the marital bed that, you know, all couples have to sleep together, else that means something terrible about your relationship. So I try to kind of unpack that history so we can be sort of aware of these sort of societal norms and prescriptions um, and then allow couples to start just having the open and honest conversations about what's working and what's not working in the bedroom. Um, because certainly, you know, sleeping apart is not the solution for all or even most couples. But at one time in any coupled existence, I guarantee you there are going to be some challenges that arise with the shared sleep experience. Um, you know, frankly, just from a time perspective, we spend a lot of our lives in bed and a lot of that is shared with our partner. So even just opening the door um, to the conversation about, you know, what does our coupled sleep existence look like and how can we optimize that? That's a real thrust of the book because I don't feel that couples have any sort of strategies or sort of, uh, openings to, in a non-threatening, you know, really pro-relationship way, start talking about this critical third of our lives that we spend asleep. And then within that, I have lots of exercises for couples to engage in together, um, to start sort of, you know, bringing out into the open. And again, in a fun and engaging way, you know, what are your expectations about, you know, the marital bed? What did your parents do? Like, did you share a bed with a sibling or a room when you're growing up? All these things matter um, when it comes to sort of our individual sort of sleep preferences. And then when you try to merge them with another human being, it's only natural that, you know, there, there may need to be some negotiation at some point, um, you know, in your you know, life as a couple. Um, so it's really meant to sort of allow couples the opportunity to start that dialogue in a fun way and in a way that's really going to sort of bring that couple together, um, including some exercises of how to sort of maximize your time in bed together before either of you falls asleep. Yeah, I think that was, um, I'm glad you highlighted that because I, when I was reading the book, it it kind of brought me back to to my process of when I'm working with the new family, a husband and wife or partners on, on getting them to just start communicating on a topic or topics that they've never talked about before. Yeah. So it could be like, what's our, what's our family purpose? You know, what are the supporting objectives that we, we want to achieve? Well, whether it's sending our, our, you know, helping support our kids through college or, you know, if it's supporting our kids through college, okay, well, how much is that? What does that look like? And I think to your point, and I'm glad that you're you're bringing this to the forefront is think about how much time we spend sleeping with our, our significant other. And yet we've probably never talked about it unless there's some kind of issue that came up. So I know Teresa and I never talked about it until we started having issues with me not being able to sleep because 
I thought it was strictly from her snoring and, and to find out that was only a part of it. I mean, yeah. I'm still figuring out other issues that that I've had with, with sleeping and, you know, part of me feels like a horse is behind because like I was putting all the blame on her and, and, and I knew at, at the end of the day, it wasn't just her. It was, it was, it was what was going on with my own circadian rhythm, if you will. Yeah. I mean, again, again, we spend, you know, roughly a third of our lives doing this behavior, right. And we're expected we're, it's assumed that couples just, you know, because you fall in love with someone that you're automatically going to be perfectly compatible <laughs> with roughly, you know, this, you know, seven to nine hours of concentrated time that you're sharing a very, you know, relatively small physical space with, you know, sleep is never a part of, you know, premarital discussions, right. even dating apps, I think have completely missed the mark in asking basic questions, as you mentioned, even about differences in circadian preferences, right? Some of us are larks, Others of us are evening owls. I can't tell you how many couples have come to me just in agony and frustration because, you know, you know, she wakes up at the crack of dawn and he, you know, burns the midnight oil. And yet they're trying to because, you know, they feel that they have to as a couple, you know, adhere to each other's sleep schedules. So one partner is basically begrudgingly being carried along with the assumption that just because you love a person, that's going to override your internal biology. It just doesn't work. So what happens? That night owl gets in bed with the you know morning lark at a time that's far too early for him. And he ends up lying there frustrated and awake, you know, just waiting for sleep to come to him, which is not going to happen if you're really a, a, a night owl, because you know your drive for sleep is just biologically predisposed to be later in the evening. So again, with couples like that, it's first of all, recognizing this is not that you're trying to avoid your partner or that there's anything wrong with your relationship. It's just asking too much to think that you can override your biology simply because you want to adhere to your partner's unique biology. And, you know, and again, within that, there's strategies to maximize the most critical time that couples can spend together, which is often just that period before either member falls asleep, you know, to really maximize that as a time to come together and connect, be intimate, just talk about your day. Use one of the strategies I talk about in my book to really foster some, you know, real communication, you know, even for a brief period, because that's good for your relationship. It's also good for your sleep. And if one partner is ready for bed for actual sleep, but the other is not, that's a great opportunity to have some closure together. But then the partner who's not actually ready for sleep can quietly leave the room and quietly return later when it's their natural later bedtime. Well, in in true form, Wendy, I... I, I think I got to maybe half the questions that were on my on my list. So that just means you'll you'll have to come back on. And one of the topics I I wrote down that I I would really want to come back to that we that you kind of touched on as far as sleep with our kids is this teens and sleeping and and um you know this matter of public opinion because this is starting to get a lot of um headway around the country I think and and so I know some states and school districts are looking at finally adjusting start times um, to better align with, with, with kids. So um, well, I'm sure you have I'm a lot of thoughts. <laughs> What's, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's a topic I'm passionate about it. I have a Ted talk on the issue of um, adolescent sleep and the conflict with early school start times. And as you mentioned, it is becoming a very hot 
policy issue, but both at the local level and individual mm-hmm. school districts, but even at the state level. And what's really exciting, just in the past week, the second state, this time Florida, uh, uh, just passed a, a law um, that will mandate healthy school start times in the state of Florida. Now, Florida is second to California, um, who previously uh, passed this law. So if ever there was a nonpartisan issue that's really just about putting the health and needs of um, students first uh, and, and looking to the science, um, the evidence is conclusive and clear that our current school start times, which tend to be um, 8 a.m. or earlier for teenagers, is far too early um, and really is causing damage. Um, and so later school start times um, are really what's recommended. And um, it's exciting to see now two states um, mandate these changes. Yeah, so that, like I said, I think that's that's a, probably a topic we could spend another hour on. So that just means you'll have to come back. <laughs> Um, but I'm glad that you mentioned that because we'll also link, you have two fabulous TED Talks that that we'll link to as well. And again, your book is Sharing the Covers, Every Couple's Guide to Better Sleep. We'll we'll link to that as well. And for our listeners that that want to continue to follow your work, Wendy, is the best place to send them to your, your website? Yeah, my website, wendytroxel.com, um, uh, or um, I uh, tweet quite a bit on um, uh various sleep-related topics. So um, that's at Wendy Troxel. Um, those are sort of the best uh, sort of social media um, mechanisms for me. And I'm also sort of um, routinely in the media and, and talking to uh, various news outlets. So you can check me out there as well. Yeah, I, we were talking before we hit record. I saw you on um, Kelly and Ryan in the morning. So that was that was pretty cool. So that was fun. <laughs> um, so let me I'll, I'll come to my my closing question. I ask all my guests. I know you already mentioned that you have uh, an older son in college who was a swimmer. Um, yeah. What is the best thing about being a parent? Um, the best thing about being a parent. Uh, I th- think just, you know, watching your children, you know, thrive and launch, uh, I guess maybe, and that might be just sort of where I am as a parent that, you know, I have one child in college and one um, who's about to leave for college. And as it's actually um, lots of mixed emotions in, in, in a way, my heart is breaking. And yet it's also just, you know, my heart is filled and it's quite overwhelming to think, you know, just about the history of these children and, you know, from the time they were, you know, babes in arms to seeing them grow into these interesting, fascinating, you know, full human beings who are about to launch into their own lives. It's just, of course, I've celebrated every, you know, swim meet, water polo game, uh, you know, good grade that they've gotten. But now it's, I think, really coming to the fore that like, as a parent, you really get to play an important role, not, but we have to always remember that like, we're not responsible for everything, the good or the bad. So we play an important role in sculpting and cultivating, hopefully, these amazing human beings who are going to contribute to society in some way. And that feels like such a gift to um, have contributed in, in some way to hopefully really important and good members of society. Well, Wendy, this conversation has been a gift. So um, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. And like I said, I'm I'm sure we'll we'll have uh, more conversations to come in the future. Well, it's been a pleasure for me too. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast 
or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.